0: We aren't going to be digging into the passage we've been in, but I do want to read it to start our message this morning. First Timothy chapter 2. So the two should come after Timothy, not before. Otherwise, you're in 2 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2. Let me read verses 8 through 15. And then we'll pray for the Lord's help. First Timothy chapter 2. Verse 8, coming through the Apostle Paul, but from the mouth of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works." father it's a privilege to worship you in song to hear your truth and to express it with the gift of music it is a privilege even more so to hear your word and to grow in it and to know that your spirit is using it to mature us to sanctify us it is the cry of our soul to say we want to see Jesus and we see him in others as they obey him We see his power in creation, but we see him most clearly in the word. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would remind us of the love of Christ and our devotion to him. And having saved us, he has joined us to a church and he is equipping us to be effective in the mission he's given us of reaching people with that truth. So bless us, help us be attentive. We pray your word bears fruit in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a portion, or have been in a portion of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is specifically addressing the issue of roles. More specifically, we come to the end of chapter 2, and he's addressing the role of women. I've mentioned this to you already. You should know that Paul is not talking about roles in a theoretical sense or in an educational sense he is bringing up these issues because he is intending to correct some things that are happening there in the church of Ephesus, where Timothy is now uh, serving as Paul's representative. Part of the problems we see in chapter 2, he's correcting them. There were men who were arguing and fighting. There were women who were coming to church inappropriately dressed. And then there were women taking upon themselves the role of elders, that is the teaching and the authority over men. Last week, we only looked at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Let me read them for you one more time. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And again, he's saying this as a command. A woman is to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Verse 12 is basically the explanation or the expansion or the unpacking of verse 11. So uh, rightfully so, when Paul says in verse 11, a woman should learn quietly, we can ask, what do you mean by that? And the answer comes in verse 12. It means that in the formal assembly of the church, she is not to teach the congregation. So it doesn't mean she can't talk or can't make noise. It's that she's not to be the teaching voice. What does it mean in verse 11 when he says a woman should learn with all submissiveness? The answer is verse 12. She is not to exercise authority over a man, meaning authority over the church, which would include men. And just to make sure his point is clear, Paul repeats at the end of verse 12 what he's already said in verse 11. A woman is to remain quiet, again, in the context of the church assembly. That's the same phrase he used in verse 11. The church is gathered corporately for worship, for instruction. It is not to be a woman that takes on the role of a teacher or of institutional authority over the men. This is for the gathered local church the woman's posture is to be one of humility and submission and silence. And I said this last week, I'll say it again. I think we all recognize that this is not a a message that the culture readily accepts. And added to that, I think more frankly, we could say it's not a message that the culture fundamentally understands either. Uh, There are those who imagine that this instruction here is much more strict than it really is, and, and, and that's unfortunate. There are those who hear this and say, well, the Bible says that a woman can't talk. A woman needs to always stay quiet, and that's not what's being said here. Again, he's only dealing with the formal gathering of the church. The the teaching voice in that setting is not to be a woman. Additionally, Paul says the highest level of authority. So that authority over the whole church, which includes having oversight over men, that is not for women. That's why we don't have women pastors We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 3. And he specifically gives the instructions or the requirements for a potential overseer, elder. We should expect the world to push back against God's design. This is the direction of the world. 200 years ago, no one would bat an eye. No one even talked about the differences between men and women, at least not academically as much. Because it was assumed now you get in serious trouble with simply stating the, the fact that men and women are different. We, we should expect the world to push back. That, that is what the unregenerate heart is going to do. Jesus told us that. What I find more troubling, however, is, is, is having groups and, and, and people or churches in the name of Christ undoing what the Bible clearly and repeatedly tells us that men and women are different. I showed you last week that what Paul says here in chapter two of First Timothy is not an isolated teaching. He says the same thing in First Corinthians fourteen. He's talking about uh, teaching in the congregations in that time, is tied to prophecies and speaking in tongues, and he says the same thing: the women are to be silent. The silence of a woman in that regard is her demonstration of a submission to the design of God. I think that's what's aimed at, at the end of verse 11. It says a woman learns in submissiveness, and who is she submissive to? I think ultimately you're dealing with submission to God and the design he has given us. But understanding what we've seen so far, why is it that you have churches today that will allow a woman to preach to the congregation or to serve as pastors? That's what I wanna help you understand in our time today. I was originally planning to finish the chapter, so we're gonna to have to do verses 13 and 14 and 15. But in prepping for that, I realized there's a lot more that is helpful, I think will be helpful for all of us as background before we finalize the chapter. So I wanna, in, in a more general way, address this issue of, of male leadership and female submission, and I wanna help you interact with those who are opposed to that idea I'm gonna start by talking about, in a general sense, how we should view those who don't hold to this position. There are those who reject this idea, those who push against the roles God has given us in his word for men and women. And then in the second half of our time, I wanna help you understand and respond to the arguments that people make claiming scripture. So again, we're not talking about the world, but people who claim scripture and say, no, 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 we don't have to do that. How do they make that position? How do they come to that conclusion? So let's start first with understanding the general response to those who oppose this. How should we think about them? Someone tells you that they have women who preach in their church. Someone tells you they have women in in, in positions of authority over the church. What what do we do with that? Well, in a general sense, we need to understand that any time we go against God's design, that is, at a minimum, unhealthy. That's a principle that Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul is addressing a, a, a culture that is falling away from the commands of God. They begin by rejecting God. They fall farther and farther from Him until you have a culture that openly embraces homosexuality. In Romans one twenty six, Paul mentions, he says, They have exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And then verse 27 says, the result of that is they received in themselves the due penalty of their error. There's a consequence to rejecting the design of God. And and Paul has something very specific in mind there. But what I'm trying to draw out of that is the more general principle. It is not healthy for any of us, in, in whatever capacity, to reject the design of God. There are going to be consequences both spiritually and physically when we do that. Again, so that's why it is unhealthy all rebellion against god all disobedience of his design is sin paul says it for example even in a homosexual relationship even in a heterosexual relationship in 1st corinthians he says a man who sins against who sins immorally so even with the woman sins against his own body there there are consequences to Fracturing or straying from God's design. But we also understand that not all rebellion is in the same category. There are different levels, there are different degrees of, of sin and they bring with them different levels of consequences or different levels of judgment. I think a good parallel here would be physical health. There are a variety of reasons why a person could be physically unhealthy and there are a variety of reasons why a church or an individual Christian can be unhealthy spiritually. I understand that it could be a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it helps us understand the issue a little bit. If we think about a person who's physically unhealthy, you might put them into three different categories along a spectrum. A person or a church can be unhealthy due, first of all, to rebellion. Secondly, they could be unhealthy due to pressure, or they could be unhealthy, lastly, due to ignorance. And, and we could think about that, I think, as, as a spectrum. Rebellious unhealth is the most troubling scenario. Rebellious unhealth is someone who flagrantly disregards the truth and is intentionally working against divine instruction. So, a physical example of this would be a man who, let's say, is in his sixties and goes to the doctor because having severe problems with his body, and they find out that he has very severe cirrhosis of the liver because he has spent most of his life abusing alcohol. And his doctor says to him directly, "You need to stop drinking. The next drink can kill you." And this man goes away thinking, what does the doctor know? I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And every night he goes partying and gets drunk. That is a rebellious unhealth. You understand that? In a local church, we see this kind of rebellion with churches that have not only embraced women as preachers and pastors, but also openly embrace the LGBTQ lifestyle, claiming that is compatible with Scripture. And there are many churches now in that category, especially here in the United States. Churches that have taken that, gone that far with this idea of erasing God's design are no longer true, faithful churches. A church like that, a church saying that a homosexual life or a transsexual life can be compatible, you can honor Christ and live like this, is a church that no longer understands sin. And if you don't understand sin, then you can't preach repentance. And if you can't preach repentance, then you don't have the right gospel. So rather than be, although the church is going to be loving in the worldly sense and inviting and welcoming, rather than lead people to the gates of heaven, they are, like Jesus said about the Pharisees, blind guides leading the blind and they're making disciples of hell. That is an unhealthy church due to rebellion. But coming down a step, you also have unhealth that is due to pressure. In the physical realm, this could be someone who says, you know, I understand that I can do things to be healthier, but I I just can't do it right now. There's a lot of pressure in my life. I don't have time to cook properly. I don't have time to exercise. I eat what people give me. I eat what's available. I eat what is fast because I'm busy. I have things to do. So we might say that person is unhealthy, but the situation isn't as severe as the rebellious person. And I think that's what we, have, we see in a lot of local churches as well. There, there's pressure upon them. This might be a church that in general understands the Bible, but there are pressures upon them that keep them from looking more into these subjects or to make healthy changes. A church can be affected by cultural pressure. They, they, they see what's going on in, in, in the culture at large, and it pushes the church. The church could be affected by, by tradition, or it could be affected by their surrounding community. A church can also feel the pressure of people leaving the church. You know, if, if we adjust this just a little bit, I think we're true to the spirit of the word. Even though we made a little bit a little change, that's going to lead to more people coming to our church, and that would be a numerical pressure. You know, if, if we change this, people are going to leave. There is no kind of pressure that should change our obedience to the Word of God, but we have to recognize there are pressures upon us that that keep us unhealthy, and that applies to other areas of life as well. The final category, and the least severe on the spectrum, is it's still unhealthy, but the final one is unhealth due to ignorance. And I think a good physical example would be all the people smoking cigarettes in the 1950s. You watch I Love Lucy, everybody's smoking. They turn on a cigarette in a, in a room, in a bedroom. You're like, who does that? Well, that's what they did in the 50s. Everybody smoked. The general population was not being told. Many didn't even know about the health risks. No one was talking about connections to cancer. The vast, at least the men, the vast majority of men smoke and, and the women smoke too. It was the fashionable thing to do. So there was a lack of health, but really it was due to a ignorance; they, they just didn't know any better. And I think we have many churches today in a similar category when it comes to various doctrinal issues. There are people gathered who love Christ. They love their church. But sadly, over time, tradition takes over. And what you have is a, a lack or an inability to be exposed to what the Bible says about these kinds of issues. You might have a, a pastor who is faithfully preaching from the word but he has more of a devotional approach he hops from topic to topic trying to encourage his people but instead of but what he isn't doing is focusing on what Paul says the teaching teaching the whole counsel of God and so usually doctrinal or ecclesiological issues like church leadership and structure they never come to the forefront and the people never hear about it I think that's a helpful way. That's kind of how I think about these kind of issues. You have at the extreme level heretical churches. They've abandoned the gospel. They're rebelling against God. They cannot lead people to Christ. And on the other end, you have people that have never been exposed to sound biblical instruction. We don't want to respond to all these churches in the same way, but we also need to be alert that unhealth is supposed to be addressed because left unchecked, unhealthy churches only get more and more unhealthy. This is what you see, in the, huge, the whole story of the Old Testament is the nation of Israel. In the book of Judges, they're falling away from God. King David comes, he restores the truth. Then you get Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and every generation goes farther and farther from the truth until you have an entire nation in rebellious pagan idolatry ignoring the word of God and it only gets fixed with a, with a strong correction like King Hezekiah or King Josiah. We've seen this stray in denominations like the Episcopal Church or the PCUSA. You have churches that begin to make concessions to culture. They begin straying from God's good order. They begin making exceptions to biblical instruction. And they're on a dangerous, unhealthy path. And usually, in just a few generations, they will openly affirm sin. And so you have... uh, Denominations like the PCUSA or the Episcopal Church openly allowing a lesbian priestess or a lesbian pastor to lead the congregation. Just as a more personalized example, some of you may be familiar with the ministry of Andy Stanley. He's a pastor in the Atlanta area. He's he's the son of Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley passed away uh, earlier this year. Andy Stanley is a big name in in, in, uh, Christianity and Christian circles. Has a large following but for the past decade or so has said things that seem to undermine some of the authority of scripture. More recently, I said more things like that. And even you know a few years ago, people began to say, that's, that doesn't sound right, that's unhealthy, it doesn't look right, you, you didn't say this or that. But a couple of weeks ago, his church began promoting a conference, and two of the speakers of the conference are men married to other men, not to each other, but to, to other men. So they're in a so-called same-sex marriage. Commenting on that, Al Mohler said, the conference is, quote, structured as what most uh, most evangelicals would quickly recognize is a departure from historic, normative, biblical Christianity. I think his actual line in the article was, the train is leaving the station, meaning this is the result of this truth. This is where things go when you erode the foundation of God's word. So anytime you have a church's theological view or a specific practice that begins to erode the fundamental distinctions that God created between men and women, you have a church on a dangerous and unhealthy path. That's why Paul addresses it here and to the the Corinthians as well. And that's why I wanna equip you about this issue ultimately from the scriptures. This is not about authority ultimately, this is about faithfulness to the word of God. I told you last week that the theological term for the view that would allow a woman to preach to a local congregation is known as egalitarianism. That's the term. You don't have to memorize it. You can forget it after today. But I'll use it in the sermon just as saying that's the term, egalitarianism. That is a view that there are to be no distinctions between men and women. The other side of that is known as complementarianism. And that is a view that men and women hold different but complementary roles. We, we, we're, we're fundamentally different and we have different roles. Both egalitarianism and complementarianism uphold a woman's equal status before the Lord. So that, that's the same. What, what changes is that the egalitarian position rejects the idea that a woman is to submit to her husband and to the authority in the church. How do they make that... Argument. I'm going to give you three primary arguments for egalitarianism. We'll talk about them one at a time and then talk about uh, understanding it biblically. The first argument from egalitarians is to say that equal status means equal roles. That's the affirmation. We have equal status before the Lord, therefore, we have equal roles. That's their big point. Take your Bible and go with me to Galatians chapter three. This is the key passage of the egalitarian position. If you ever hear someone discussing this topic, this is the passage they will bring up. Galatians 3, 28. Galatians 3, 28 may sound familiar to you. Uh, You have a similar uh, passage in Colossians. Galatians 3, 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. According to the egalitarian position, this verse is a, is a proof text that there is to be no distinction between men and women. It says it there. There is no male and female. So what do we do with that? What's the problem in saying that? The problem is it misses the point of the passage. It misses what the immediate context makes absolutely clear. If we zoom out a little bit, we realize that Paul is not talking about function. He's talking about salvation being by faith alone as opposed to salvation requiring works, which is what the Judaizers were saying. Oh, you want to be a Christian? That's great. You've got to be circumcised for the men. You've you, you got to honor all the Old Testament rules about the laws and the feasts and the days and the dietary restrictions. And Paul says, that's not what saves you. It's not the law of the Old Testament. The law came to expose you to sin. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ. I want to just back up a little bit. Go to chapter 2 of Galatians and look at verse 16. Galatians 2, verse 16. It says there, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can highlight that if you want Underline That's the theme of Galatians. That's the theme he continues into chapter three. That's the background of chapter three. He doesn't change topics. Salvation is not based on our works. It's not based on the law. It's based on the promise of God and our faith in his promise. And so going back to chapter three, let's back up just a little bit from verse 28 and let's start in verse 25, just so we get a little more of the context. You get to see the the full idea of the point he's making. Verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He's talking, he's using the term guardian to speak to uh, the law. He says earlier, the law was your guardian. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's the context of this discussion. You're saved by Christ, you're covered by Christ, so you're equal in status. If you can imagine a high school class, they're in line waiting for lunch, and one of the boys begins to get impatient, and he's bothering people around him, or he's trying to jump the line, and there's a teacher standing by, and she says, "Hey, wait your turn. Wait your turn. It doesn't matter where you are in line. There's plenty for everyone. We're all equal. We're all getting the same portion. Just stay where you are, you will eat." Okay, just imagine that scenario. And then later, this young man goes to choir practice. And that same boy, he was still grumpy because he had to wait for his lunch. And now he's grumpy because he didn't get a part that he wanted in the choir. He didn't get the solo that he wanted. And it just so happens that the choir teacher is the teacher who talked to him in the lunch line. Would it be legitimate for him to say to her, hey, 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 you said we're all the same. You said there are no differences. Why didn't I get that part? Would that be a legitimate argument? The answer is no, it's a different context. In terms of lunch, everybody gets the same type, they get the same amount of food, but when it comes to singing in the choir, there are different roles, there are different parts. If if your voice is a bass or a baritone, you can't say, I want the soprano's role. And if you're a soprano, you can't say, I want the bass's role. Hopefully that analogy helps, there are roles. You can make the same analogy with, with the team. There are different functions, different roles. Galatians 3 is affirming the equality of men and women before the Lord. Nobody is a second-class citizen. All of us enter into the kingdom of heaven through the finished work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. But that equality in status does not mean we all have the same access to the same roles. And you see this when the New Testament talks about, in a general sense, spiritual gifts. The New Testament says the church is a body. Body has different parts. Parts have different functions. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says we all have the same spirit, but we don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same function. We're, we're different. We are united in Christ. There should be no division, but that doesn't mean there should be no distinction between our contributions. Uh, my life is every bit as valuable as any other human, but I'm not going to play in the NBA. There are differences among us, Right? You have to understand that that's that's the response here. This is God's design. Just like there are different roles in the body of Christ, men and women will have different roles in marriage and in the church. It doesn't mean the women are inferior to the men. It doesn't mean a woman's contribution is less valuable. It just means that it's different. Equal status does not mean we get to have the same function. And when there is a difference in function or role, that doesn't mean we have a difference in status or value. So don't let that be mixed up for you. That, that, that's, that's really the, the myth, the argument. Oh, we're equal, therefore we should all be able to do the same thing. The best example of equal status with differing roles would be the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father. Is Jesus equal to God the Father in power In authority, is Jesus eternal with the Father? And we have to say, yes. Is Jesus worthy of worship like God the Father? Yes. Amen. If you deny that, you're outside of historic, biblical, orthodox Christianity. But in terms of function, the Son has come down, He has taken on human flesh, and He willingly submits to the plan and the desires of the Father. I have come to do His will so they're equal, the father and the son, they're equal in status, but they're different when we talk about their roles. So if you want to get uh, the more theological terms is the ontological trinity and their being, their essence, then you have what some call the economic trinity. That is the way they function. Commenting on equal status, different roles, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse three. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, the, the father. That's the head. Head refers to a, a, a position of functional authority, and there is to be submission to that head, and that's why you have passages like Ephesians, Colossians, First Peter. They instruct the women to submit to their husbands. And then you have instructions for the man. The, his, his job as the head is to love and to sacrifice for her good, to be tender, to honor her, for as Peter says. Anytime a man abuses his leadership and fails to honor his wife, he dishonors God. And I think that's really the, the key battle. The, the, the woman... The, the, We tend to put more blame on the woman because she's not, you know, if she doesn't submit, that she's not fulfilling the role or the, the design God's given. But the same is true for the man who refuses to lead. Young men, God made you to lead, to work, to provide, to serve, to humble yourself and minister for the good of others. And many times I think it's the women being almost forced into leadership because the men are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. We have to understand there are different roles. Husbands and wives, pastors, members, they have different roles in the church, but together we are displaying the glory of Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. This is all to showcase Christ and his love for the church. And just to be clear, I want to make sure you understand this, the Bible never teaches that every woman is supposed to submit to every man. That is not a biblical principle. All it states is that within a family, within a marriage, and then when the church gathers, the woman submits to the authority of the man. Same status, but different roles. So that's the first argument. Same status, different roles is not true. You can have equal status and at the same time have different functions. A second argument that the egalitarian position makes is that hierarchy is a product of the fall. And this one just sounds so uh, helpful, academic, when you, you, you want to believe it. They say hierarchy, the division between men and women, that is a product of the fall. The authority of man, according to the egalitarian position, is not part of God's original creation. It's a result of sin coming into the world. The world is now broken, and Christ came to undo the curse. Therefore, in Christ and in the church, we can undo the authority of a man. So let's look at this one a little more closely, and you can go in your Bible to page 1, Genesis chapter 1. Most of you know Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the overarching summary of chapter one. God's going to create. And in six sequential days, God begins to form and organize and fill the world that he's created. He makes dry land. He makes water. He makes sky. He fills the sky with, with flying animals. He fills the, 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 the fish, the, the sea with sea animals, sea creatures, and he fills the land with animals on the land. You have a, at the end of all those, that day comes on the sixth day, his, his culminating act of creation. This is verse 26. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when God speaks of creating man in his image, that's not using the word man as opposed to woman. It's man in terms of mankind. Because it says at the end of verse 27, male and female. That is the divine account of creation. Men and women are equally made in the image of God. They're both made to cooperate and to serve and represent God on the earth. That's what it means to be made as his image so the egalitarian position will say, that yes, we're equal. You see, that was the point. We're, we're in the image of God. We work together. We're partners. And then they jump to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is a story of sin entering the world. Satan, at some time, comes to the woman, and he convinces her that God is somehow for some reason, withholding something good from her. This fruit is good for you. I know you're hearing that that you shouldn't eat from this tree, but this will be good for you. This will make you like God. And so Eve, convinced of that, takes a bite. And then she turns to her husband who's with her, and he partakes of the fruit as well. This is the entrance of sin into the human race. And as a result, the man and the woman hide themselves, and God comes and he calls out to the man, where are you? The man comes out, he admits his shame, his nakedness, and God says, did you eat from the tree? And rather than say, yes, I did, God, uh, Adam says this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So he passes the blame a little bit to his wife, but he's also passing blame to God. You're the one that gave it to me. She's the one that gave it to me. So yes, I ate, but you know, look what happened. Happy wife, happy life, you see, so God turns to the woman, and she says, God says, did you, did you eat? And she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And we'll talk about this next week when we finish First Timothy 2. I was deceived by the serpent, and I ate. And with that, God pronounces a curse on the serpent, on the man, and on the woman. You should be familiar with this. This is the the first promise of redemption in the world. The serpent is now cursed because he is going to be destroyed by the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman. And then God turns to the woman and he curses her. This is Genesis chapter three, verse 16. To the woman, he said, God, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so what the egalitarian position does is takes that last phrase, he shall rule over you, and says, you see, that's a product of the curse. Man was not supposed to rule over the woman, but now that sin came in, then this hierarchy was introduced. The hierarchy is a result of the curse. And again, Christ came, he came to undo the curse. So in Christ, we can undo and we should undo the authority of a man over a woman. Uh, One pastor put it this way, egalitarian position. He said, God intended a partnership and now what we have is a patriarchy. It's an attractive argument to some, but there are some serious problems. The biggest problem with this viewpoint is that it doesn't understand what it is that the curse accomplished. The curse of God on the world did not change his original design. The curse of God was to frustrate the design. It brought friction into the world so that God's design would no longer flow easily. You can see this if you just keep reading on the curse that God spoke to the man. God says, the ground is going to be cursed. There's going to be thorns and thistles. It will be painful for the man to work. There will be sweat it's going to be a chore. It's going to be hard for the man to subdue the land. And so if you follow the same logic, you say, oh, you see, before the curse, man wasn't going to have to work, but now he's got to work the land. And that is not true. Work is not a product of the fall. Whatever you got to go to work tomorrow or the day after, that's not because of the fall. We know that because Genesis 2.15, we're said, it says there, we're told, God put the man in the garden, in the garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. Work was a pre-fall design of God. So what did the curse do? It didn't make the man work. It made the work more difficult. Now he's gonna to have to sweat. Now we could say the land is gonna fight back with thorns. The, there used to be a mist, it says. It would, how nice. These are like divine sprinklers every morning. Everything's taken care of. You don't have to do anything. You go out, you eat what you want. This is the original design. But now he's gotta work. He has to work the land and it's gonna fight back. It will dry up. And that's the same thing we see happening with the curse on the woman. The the curse didn't introduce the hierarchy. It introduced a friction in the relationship between a man and his wife. He was already given a position of authority over her, but now she's gonna fight back. Using what verse 16 says, he says, ESV translates, it says, your desire shall be for your husband, yet he shall rule over you. It's the friction that is the result of the curse, not a new design. When it says there that she will have a desire for her husband, that is not talking about sexual desire. Some people have said that. Oh, this is speaking of sexual desire, as if that was a function of the curse as well. They say that because that word desire is used again, it's used uh, in the book of Song of Solomon, which is dealing with the romantic desire between a man and his wife. But Song of Solomon was written, it's a different author, it's 500 years later. That word desire is used one other time in the scriptures. So it's used in Genesis 3, it's used in Song of Solomon, but it's also used by the same author in a much closer comparison in Genesis chapter four, verse seven, same word in the Hebrew. God is speaking to Cain. If you know the story, Cain is sitting down upset because God did not accept his sacrifice, but he accepted the sacrifice of his brother Abel. And God says to Cain in Genesis four, seven, sin is crouching at the door. It's it's desire is for you or, or it has a desire for you but you must rule over it. So you see the same words, the same connections to Genesis 3.16. There's desire and there's this idea of ruling. The desire there then is the desire to control. That was, what is the desire of sin to control? And eventually in Cain's life, it took over him because he ends up killing his brother. So that's what desire means here. Just like God's curse meant the ground was going to fight back against the man's work, the curse now had a woman who was going to have desires to fight back against her husband's leadership. That's the curse. That is, uh, Romans 5 explains, the, the, the subsequent sinful nature that has come into mankind. Men are tempted not to lead as God requires. We we're tempted to laziness, to harshness, to bitterness, to authoritarianism. And the wife because of sin, is not going to want to submit to her husband as God requires. She's not going to easily and naturally accept God's design. The curse is a frustration. It's it's a difficulty in accomplishing the design. It's like the bike chain that just keeps getting stuck and the design of the bike works. It's just that the gears don't move. That's the curse. Things take work. There's friction now. And you see this friction most clearly if you just read the first part of verse 16. Because the second part of the curse is the relationship with her husband, but the first part of the curse for the women is her relationship with children. God said to her, In pain, you shall bring forth children. If you follow the same logic that the man ruling is part of the fall, you have to say, Oh, well, having kids is part of the fall. But that can't be the case because you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and God says, He made them and He says, Be fruitful and multiply, have lots of kids. That was part of God's good design. Having kids is not part of the curse. It is the great pain of having kids. That's what the curse introduced. So one last time, the curse did not introduce the hierarchy. It introduced a difficulty, a friction. Another problem with this misunderstanding of the curse is that it makes a false distinction between what that one pastor referred to as a partnership instead of a patriarchy. They speak as if those are two different things. You can't be partners and you can't have leadership and submission. Does God intend a man and his woman and his wife to be a partner? Yes, yes. First Peter three says uh, your wife is a co-heir, a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is to be honored, it says there. But being partners doesn't mean that one isn't going to submit to the other two two soldiers can be part of the same team fulfilling the same mission and one has a higher rank than the other they're they're partners in that sense but there's a different different hierarchy another and final problem with this misunderstanding of the curse is that it does what i just did it completely jumps over genesis chapter two they'll go to chapter one and say this is god's design you're both made in the image of god then they jump chapter three and say oh gee the curse brought hierarchy But you've jumped right over Genesis chapter two. You can turn there with me. Genesis chapter two, just maybe back a page. Verse 18. Chapter one was a summary of God's creative work. It says he made male and female. But then chapter two goes back into the second half of day six of creation, and it slows the story down so so that we would know how it was that God made the man and the woman. Look at Genesis two, verse 18. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God recognizes the man is alone, but Adam doesn't recognize it yet. God wants him to see that. Verse 19. Now, it's going back to what he did earlier. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So you didn't have all the diversity of species that we have today, but God brings the animals to him and he says, I give him a name. And he goes, by the way, look, there's a group of whatever a lion would have been like back then. Here's a group of the dogs. Here's a group of cats, whatever. There are different types of animals. The man gave name, verse 20, he gave names to all the livestock the birds of the heavens, but, and the beasts of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the, a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, the Lord took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. God is presenting this gift to Adam." Then the man said, "This, at last is bone of my bones." and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word for man is ish and the Hebrew word for woman is ishah. So you see a lot more of the relationship there. God wanted Adam to feel lonely so that he could, God, could provide a solution that Adam would not just appreciate but cherish and honor. It came from his own flesh, the fact that she came from his side is an image of their partnership, that they're equal before God, but they weren't created at the same time. God created the woman as a helper for the man. That's not an inferior status. That same word is used for God in the Old Testament God is our helper. But here, what it's conveying is the idea of a woman's service and, and submission. Ultimately, she is going to meet a need for the man. God did not create mankind the same way he created all the animals. He he filled the the, the seas with fish. He filled the air, the the sky with birds. But But he didn't create a mass of humanity. He intentionally made one man, and then he made one woman out of that man. He intentionally made and told us that he made a man first as a symbol of the authority that he would have over his wife in the way that they function for the glory of God. And we'll talk more about that when we finish First Timothy 2 next week. Commenting on this, at least on the idea of submission in a marriage, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. He's speaking of a woman submitting to her husband. He says, for man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then to make sure he isn't saying that men are of some higher status, Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of a man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So the first woman was made from a man. But after that, every single man was made, comes from a woman. This is God's design. There is interdependence. Neither one can say, I don't need you. There is equality and status, but again, that doesn't erase the differing roles. And that's what the New Testament describes when we talk about marriage. Paul tells in Ephesians and Colossians, he, he, he doesn't even tell the man, you have authority. He, he assumes that, but he says that authority is to be expressed in love and sacrifice because it is, it is an extension and an expression of Christ's authority and love and care for his church. And then a woman then submitting to her husband is an expression of the humble heart of Christ who submits to the Father, and our heart in submitting to him. So we honor Christ in different ways, but we do it together for the glory of God so we can showcase our king and our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Let me give you one final argument made by the egalitarian position. This is the argument, uh, maybe more pragmatic in in regards, but it's, it's, it's the argument that, well, God has used so many women in the past Numerous examples, biblically and historically. What do we do with that? So the first argument has to do with uh, equal status means equal function, which is not true. The second argument says that the fall introduced the hierarchy, which is not true. This one says, well, God has used so many women, so who are we to tell them they shouldn't be doing this? At the outset, we should recognize the historic effect many women have had. But we also need to recognize that from a human perspective, any effect of, of a person on the world is not the final criteria The most pressing criteria will always be faithfulness to the word of God. Just as an extreme example, there are plenty of churches out there that are growing and that dishonor God with their message. You have non-Christian groups, the Mormon church, Islam, whatever. Just because they're growing, we can't say, well, that means God is blessing them and they're doing a good job. Cults and other religions may grow faster than Christianity. That doesn't mean they're faithful to the word of God. But more specifically, when people bring up examples in the Bible specifically, we got to be ready to respond In the Old Testament, the most pressing example is Deborah. So you read the book of Judges, Deborah. God used her to lead the Israelites to victory and salvation from their enemy. But uh, more specifically or technically speaking, Deborah wasn't the judge. The judge was a man named Barak. And Barak was too afraid to go fight for Israel and obey God. And so he needed a, a woman essentially to boost his confidence. He said, if you go, then I'll go fight. This would be the equivalent of, you know, noises in the living room. And the husband and wife wake up and he grabs a basil by and says, Hey, honey, if you go with me, I'll go. That, that's essentially what Barack is doing. And so a woman is included and she goes. And this is on the one side, part of God's mercy toward him. But it's also a picture of the increasing shame of Israel. Because that's the theme of Judges. Israel is going in a downward spiral of sin and shame. It goes into um, Samson, who is a champion Samson, who can't control himself with honey or with women. And so when Deborah agrees to go, she says, okay, surely I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. If you know the story, I think her name was Jael. She killed their enemy sister, while he slept under a rug with a tent peg and a hammer right through his temples. She was given the glory of the victory, not Barak. The woman's victory in the battle was part of God's judgment on the nation. And it lines up with what Isaiah says in chapter three, verse 12, speaking of judgment coming upon Israel for their continued rebellion. Isaiah 3, 12 says, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. It was not a commendable thing to have a woman ruling over the people of God. You come to the New Testament and you have many examples of women serving. And again, we need to say, amen, we need them. Christ elevated women out of the place that Greek and Roman society had placed them and even the Jewish establishment at the time. But Christ comes in in elevating them and during his ministry, you see women serving, but not to the degree of a leader in a local church. You have an example of a... A prophetess named Anna in Luke, I think it's chapter 2, she says she was 84 years old. What was her ministry? It says she never left the temple. She was a widow. She was at the temple. It says she worshiped and fasted and prayed and she spoke to all the people there about Jesus. That is a beautiful thing that she did, that God commends her, blesses her for it. That is not the same as the ministry of an elder or a pastor in the church. The the, the the Jewish temple had levels. There was the plaza of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could go no further. There was the plaza of the women. Women could go no further. And then there was uh, the the central area where only men were allowed. She is she would have honored that. So she's she's not able to go all the way to the center. So w- what does that mean? She she you know sounds more like a, 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 the 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 ideal greeter. And in, in she's talking to everybody who comes in and telling them about Jesus. That's her ministry. But she wasn't leading in the formal association of God's people. During Jesus' ministry, you have repeated examples of women, some of them specifically named, who ministered to him. They ministered to the apostles. But Jesus did not name a single woman as an apostle. There is also no woman in Scripture who is recognized as an author of Scripture. God worked through the men. The Apostle Paul, a big passage people recite is Romans 16. Look at Romans 16. All these names Paul mentions, co-laborers with him. And it has women's name there. Amen. We need women. One of the names there is Priscilla or Prissa and her her husband was Aquila and there's a story in Acts where uh, they go to Apollos who was a good teacher but didn't understand. It says Priscilla took him aside and taught him more, more accurately the message of Christ. Amen, we need that as well. She gave him though, what she gives him was personal instruction, not a sermon to the entire congregation. And then in Paul's ministry, you never have him naming a woman as a pastor or as an elder in a local church. Acts chapter uh, five and six, six, where you have the the deal with the people being fed, choose seven wise men among you. These men end up having ministries of preaching and teaching. So on the one hand, we want to affirm the the contribution of of women. It's, It's a beautiful contribution. It's a critical contribution. It's necessary in the life of a church. But biblically and historically, Affirming women in ministry in the mission field or any other thing does not mean we are to allow them to serve as pastors and preachers for a local congregation. That is something, we'll continue this as we go on, that the word of God prohibits. There is no example in the New Testament of any woman preaching to a congregation. So hopefully that's been helpful. You know, you read these arguments and you go, oh, well, you know, people just believe different things, but but look at them more closely Equal status in Christ does not mean that the distinctions are erased. The curse on this world didn't introduce the hierarchy. It was the frustration of the hierarchy. And women's ministry in the Bible and in church history are not enough to undo the clear principles that you have laid out repeatedly in Scripture from Genesis all the way to the New Testament epistles. Hopefully that's been helpful in a general sense. with dealing with egalitarianism and complementarianism. We still got to deal with First Timothy, and we'll do that next week. How do you read that? And how do you, what do we do? How, how are people deciding to say, well, it doesn't mean what, it says, what it's saying. We'll deal with that next time. As we close, I just want to affirm one more time, this issue of headship, this issue of authority, the culture rebels against. And, and to some degree, we will as well, because we're sinners. But the ultimate issue at stake is not control It's not trying to fight over control. That's not the heart behind this discussion. The heart is obedience to the word of God. There are going to be and there will continue to be countless examples of poor leadership. Abusive leadership, negligent leadership. Men are sinners, women are sinners. But those negative examples will not, shouldn't be used to minimize the design of God. Paul said to Timothy, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We are here to proclaim the word of God and we put it on display in all that we do. And so we pray by God's grace that he'll continue to enable us to do that faithfully. Let's pray. Father, your word is is rich and it's rich with meaning and there are truths that that, that immediately minister to our heart and serve us and edify us. And there are other truths that this may be varied for us individually, but there are truths that we want to affirm to be true because it's from your word, but the sinful nature fights against it. That is Paul's heart in Romans 7. I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing. What I'm not supposed to doing, I keep doing. Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ to forgive and to cleanse, but we thank you for the grace that also sanctifies and conforms us to this, to 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 our Lord and Savior, and to Your Word, not to this world. So help us give us strong marriages where men are sacrificing and leading. Forgive us for our foolishness, our laziness, our um, entitled attitudes. May our wives know clearly that we love them. May may the world see that we're here to serve them through leadership, through protection, through provision. And may the women in our church and the women who serve you understand the great and beautiful contribution they make to the home, even in working outside the home and raising children and demonstrating the compassion and the kindness and the mercy of God. This is your beautiful design. And we pray you help us exalt it and proclaim it to the world that needs to see it and hear it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.